Good day, and welcome to episode 46 of the Aaron Wayne Podcast. Glad y'all are with me. Had a couple guest podcasts coming through recently, and I'm back to the solo game. I'm back on it. Feels good. I uh, really enjoy having the intro music while I do the intro. If I'm honest with you, I just recorded an intro a second ago, and then I was like, what am I talking about? It's because I'm out of practice. I have, uh, the thing about doing a podcast is that I really like doing it, and every time I post a podcast, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, which is reaffirming for me that I'm doing something of value, but it, uh, it's a time suck, man. Like It, it takes the, the time of actually sitting down and to do it, and then um, editing it and putting it together like especially when I do multicam stuff because most people don't watch this on YouTube. I get like, I don't know, every now and again, something will pop to a couple hundred, but for the most part, it's like fewer than 50 people that are watching it on YouTube. Um, so that has the smallest view like of people consuming it, but I really like doing the video. Maybe it's just cause I like to look at myself. Am I an egomaniac? Yeah. But am I better than all the other egomaniacs because I admit it? Yeah. That's the how an egomaniac thinks. I'm so good at being an egomaniac that I know I am. So uh, I'm okay. <laughs> oh boy. There's a lot of stuff going on in my life. And um, it's uh, the, the, some things you just don't want to talk about. Um, and so I'm not going to talk about them. And then there are other things that are like going on in the world. You know, I'm thinking about, um, man. I just keep getting caught in this little net of wanting to talk about things and then trying to decide if I should talk about them, not in my personal life, but in the, in the, in the greater world. Um, I've been thinking about the fact that the, there might be a mandate that comes through for uh, public school teachers to get vaccinated. And that's not even about like my choice to, or not to get vaccinated. Um, but I really think that there's a strange line that gets crossed as soon as you start to share your medical information with your employer. I think that there's like a, like separation of church and state separate of separation of uh, medicine and employment. I think that that needs to happen in the same way that I think that having your health insurance tied to the fact that you have a job is kind of strange. I think that telling your employer, your medical history, I think is not a good idea in the long term. Um, regardless of whether I am or am not vaccinated. People that know me know my status, um, but I don't want my employer to be in my business in that regard. Um, because there are other things that, oh man, I could go down a whole tangent here. I don't know. I think about, um, oh, what do I think about? I just think it's, I, th I just think it's a bit sticky. I think that having uh, your employer be aware of your personal medical choices, is probably a bad idea because that might lead to, yes, in this situation, it could make sense. But as soon as we set precedents, I mean, I think precedents are super important because when judges and lawyers and politicians and legislators, when they look at, Hey, what can we do? What lever can we pull in this situation? If you create a lever, they're going to pull it at a later time. And that's foundational to this country is to give uh, more sovereignty to the individual so that they don't have a lever pulled against them. I don't know. I've been thinking about these things. Um, you know, I got some feedback from a friend of mine 
who listens to the podcast, um, he, he and I met actually because he went through the teacher training program that I lead, uh, which are actually wrapping up this weekend. Um, uh, what time is it? It's four o'clock on a Friday. Um, the TTs are going through some Ayurvedic lectures and, and practices tonight with one of the other co-leads, but tomorrow we um, go through the graduation process for the weekend, which is really cool to graduate another uh, program of teacher trainees. Um, if you're interested in yoga teacher training, we're going to start a new one in uh, January, I believe, late January. So if you are interested in that and you're not even local, like we've been doing a hybrid model because of COVID. So if you're not local and you want to learn more about it, just DM me at Aaron Wayne Yoga and I'll uh, tell you everything you need to know about the program. But the reason I brought that up, one, is to celebrate the fact that my TTs are going to be graduating, which is awesome. We have a really good group of people and... Um, they've really shown a lot of growth in the practice and utilization of the practice, both the asana and like the deeper philosophical stuff, um, which is really cool, especially since we did it in a four month instead of a six month per format. And I think that four month is probably the sweet spot. Uh, it's pretty cool to see that happening. But the reason I brought that up, the second reason I brought that up is because my buddy um, gave me some feedback on the previous podcast I did, which was about the previous solo podcast I did called politics comes to school. I think that was, uh, AWP 44, I think. And, uh, the public school district that I teach in, uh, had everyone take down flags that, uh, had a pride flag. They, they had uh, us all take down our pride flags. I actually have it right here in the podcast studio now. Um, oh wait, my salt lamp isn't on. I messed up my lighting. Come on, salt lamp. Boom. If you're watching on YouTube, which nobody is, but whatever. So he gave me some good feedback and I was thinking about it. And then I was talking to another friend of mine who is a, a cop that lives in Nova. And he and I were talking about it as well because he listens to the podcast. And the point that my friend who was um, in, in the yoga world with me, uh, the point he made is that this is um, a political obfuscation. Um, or no, he didn't make that point. He was talking about erasure of, of a population. Um, and that at least this is my understanding. And so if you're listening, buddy, uh, help me understand it better. Cause I think we talked about this primarily via text, but my understanding of, um, his view on it is that taking down the pride flag is, uh, emblematic of denying the fact that these people exist, which in turn is like, semi like genocide like destroying a culture taking it away and so that's not m he comes from a different view because this is he's a part of this community um and he has a different connection to it and that doesn't mean that um my view isn't valid but my view isn't very distinct from his i think my view is that it is being used as a political tool not necessarily a destructive tool towards that community and like i this is just my sense this is something i could be totally wrong about and i valued the feedback from him because it was a view that i hadn't considered and i did think about it and i did try and ponder it and i think that there probably is a chunk of people within the community that wanted to take that down um who I didn't even plan on going back down this rabbit hole, but I figured it'd be worth addressing. I think there's a, a proportion of those people that wanted the pride flag to be taken down in public schools that do deny um, the fact that uh, LGBTQ people should be in, in public space. There probably is a proportion of people who think that. So I'm not denying that. 
what I'm saying is that I think that it's uh, they're using it as a political tool. And that was the whole point of that podcast previously, Politics Comes to School, which is they um, are associating my political views with the pride flag, which I don't think that that is another reason I put the pride flag up was to demonstrate any political leaning. It was just about humanism and seeing humans and wanting to support them being their individual humanness. Um, and then my other friend, so I hope that's clear. And um, if you're listening to this podcast, hit me up and tell me where I got it wrong. Cause I'm happy to learn. Um, and then my other friend made up the point uh, my friend who lives in Nova. Uh, he made the point that the, the lawyer made at the school board meeting, which is, if this flag is permitted, then why isn't a Blue Lives Matter flag per- permitted? It's not explicitly associated with a political affiliation, but people would make assumptions. If I were to, f- and I think that, huh, what do you get? Is, some, is, <laughs> is this going to make people mad? I think that we should really uh, have more respect for police than we do. That's my personal opinion. But I also don't live in a community that has um, had. I don't live in a community that has a different view of police than what I have. And so I, I'm, I'm welcome to being corrected on that. But I, in, in the whole, I think that, um, being a cop is an unbelievably hard job. And the things that we ask police to do are like, we ask them to do everything. Like my buddy was telling me, he, he ended up uh, adopting a dog because, someone called the police and there was this dog. It was just this tiny little dog, some fancy little pup. And it was, didn't have a collar. It was snowing outside and someone called the police. Um, so people outsource a lot of the problems of society to police. And then when things don't go as they should, um, we tend to sort of demonize police, but I think there's a lot of good police out there. Um, like the all cap, uh, a cab, all cops are bad. I think that that's like, I think that's a pretty insidious, um, I think that's a pretty bad idea to have in my view. I don't even know how I ended up talking about police. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, he was saying, uh, that if a pride flag is allowed to be permitted, then, um, and this wasn't his opinion that it should be taken down. I'm not misconstruing what he said. Uh, he said that the argument one would make is you could also keep up, um, a Dresden flag with the don't tread on me flag or a, um, uh, blue lives matter flag which you know i like the idea of don't tread on me but that's also not my political persuasion the one that you would i mean people would associate that with conservatism and uh republicans and i think that uh i do like the I, idea of don't tread on me um i think personal liberty is important and uh i think that's the balance that this country has always contended with and one of the things that i've been thinking about lately um I was listening to uh, a podcast with Tim Ferriss and he had this guy on, I don't recall his name, uh, but he uh, suggest the guy he was interviewing suggested this article uh, called the triumph and terror of Wang Huning uh, with palladium. And I recommend you read that article because it's so interesting to see. How it, so it's all about this guy who's basically the Dick Cheney of China. If you're old enough to recall like Dick Cheney's role in the early uh, 2000s, in, during the Bush administration, he's basically that, except he has had the ear of Xi Jinping, the current uh, president of China, and the two previous presidents of China. So he's been like, he's sort of like the deep state of China, but his, um, he's, uh, he was trained with Western philosophy 
and has deep understanding of democratic processes as well as his culture that he comes up in. Um, and a, he's a scholar of Confucianism and it's like this really interesting character who has created a lot of the modern practices, at least alleges alleged by this article, a lot of the modern practices we see in China um, when it comes to uh, censoring the internet, um, social credit score stuff, uh, monitoring individuals in a sort of Orwellian way. And the problem that I have with this is that some of their ideas, some of their ideas are pretty darn good. Now I'm not saying, <laughs> let me uh, take a sip of water with my American flag on it. Mm. What I mean by that is, you know, if you've seen The Social Dilemma, you've seen uh, any of these really interesting people like Tristan Harris or um, Michael Schmeckenberger or, um, you know, there's a whole suite of people out here trying to do this work of informing the population that you have trillion dollar companies who pay billions of dollars using the most advanced understandings of human psychology in conjunction with the largest data sets of 3 billion people that are on social media, how they utilize those tools in order to manipulate our time and pull our awareness away from human existence. And the Chinese government has enacted a couple policies in order to prevent the youth from going down the path that our youth are currently going down. Just Google um, mental health trends in the last 20 years and look at that, or even the last 50 years, right? Um, a, co a confounding factor within that data set might be that we have more of a social awareness around mental wellness and mental health that we might be detecting things at a higher rate. So that might be a confounding factor, but I think even if you were to look at that data with that in mind, the... Um, like the logarithmic growth of mental health problems in teens is undeniably an effect of the advent of the cell phone, the modern iteration of the cell phone, because social media existed when I was in college, but it was primarily not on your phone. I had a Blackberry um, my freshman year, right? With the keypad. Remember these things? Do you miss the keyboard? I don't, but I sort of do, but I don't really. The, cell phone was just that until like 2009 you know my sophomore junior year of college and once we put the phones once we put these smartphones in the hands of the youth it started I, like I really think I was the last generation that didn't get screwed up by this that it started to dramatically affect teen mental health and so what the Chinese are doing I have a quote from this article um, Chinese miners have Miners is in like minors, you know what I mean? Like minors, <laughs> not like uh, China, Chinese young people. Um, Chinese young people have been banned from playing the quote spiritual opium of video games for more than three hours per week. Does your kid play more than, or do you know a kid that plays more than three hours of video games a week? How's that doing for him? Um, at the same time, they have which we, I don't know why nobody's talking about this because this is kind of screwed up. This is not kind of screwed up. This is actually really terrible. 
we talk about taking the pride flag down in public schools in Virginia, which is a conversation that may or may not have nuance to it. LGBT groups have been scrubbed from the internet. In fact, there's another quote in this article where this dude, Wang, he is quoted as saying, um, uh, with the government vowing to, quote, resolutely put an end to sissy men, end quote, appearing on the screens of China's impressionable youth. So let that sink in for a second. You know, I listen to another um, podcast because that's all I do all the time. I either, I'm either listening to a podcast or I'm making a podcast. I listen to another podcast and um, I think it was Sam Harris's podcast. And he had a guy on who was talking about um, just uh, totalitarianism and freedom. And he said that one of the key factors of what it looks like to live in a free society is a pride parade. And I think that if you look around the world, there's a huge portion of the country, there's a huge portion of the world where it is just illegal to be part of the LGBT community. Um, and even in places where it's not illegal explicitly, think about having a pride parade in a place like China. Like it just doesn't exist. You know what I mean? And so I think that that's a real unique, not, not unique. That's not what I mean. It is a, a marker of liberty that as a country we are free to celebrate in that way and looking at what china's doing um and this is to be clear not one of the policies that i agree with i think that's terrible um resolutely put an end to sissy men appearing on the screens of chinese impressionable youth it's so wild and this goes to the, the idea of like this orwellian understanding of how the world could function if we had total state control like they do in China. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention uh, that's going on that I le learned from this art article is highlighted somewhere where I'm scrolling and I'm continuing to scroll. I don't know. Let me get back into this. Oh, the other thing I want to talk about was the, uh, the things that I think would actually be a good idea that the Chinese government's doing. But the thing is, we can't give our government... We can't give our government the control to do these things. So that's where it's like really challenging to know what to do about it. And corporations are not incentivized within their current structures to do this either. But I do think that the idea that kids should be limited to three hours of video games per week, or maybe it's six hours, maybe it's eight hours. I don't know how many hours it is. Maybe it's an hour a day. Maybe it's two hours a day, whatever. And I think responsible parents are mindful of this and they just do this through their practices as parents. But I think that we should be limiting the amount of time that kids are playing video games. Not because I don't think video games are inherently bad, because I think that there are definite benefits to cognitive mapping, uh, reaction time, the sense of accomplishment. Like there are, there's research to show that there that people that play video games have uh, more proficient capacity to do cognitive mapping meaning if i give you directions can you remember them more clearly so there is there are there's research on that and it also improves reaction times but you know at, with your thumbs you know so the rest of your body is getting soft and doughy while your ligaments and joints start to deteriorate and your back becomes bulging with discs, but your thumbs are really fast. So I guess that's a benefit. 
Um, the thing that I thought that was really interesting that might be a very useful uh, thing that we could encourage social media companies to do because we can't get kids off social media. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think we're going to be able to do it. I think even an act of Congress would create a large amount of pushback and there are more lobbyists. I think I might have said this in another podcast. There are more lobbyists that work for Facebook than there are congressmen and women. So just wrap your head around that. There are more individuals living in D.C. focused on the express proliferation and advantage, uh, advantaged um, legislation for social media, specifically Facebook and Instagram. There are more of those people than there are representatives for the American community. That seems strange. So I don't think anything is going to ca- happen that way. But I think one thing that would re- be really beneficial for social media companies to do would be what I saw that China has done, which is they have a um, like a nighttime protocol. And between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., young people are not able to access social media websites. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? I mean, these kids, they're living, these kids are living lives as if they are, um, they're living as if they are high stakes stock investors living in New York City and trying to wake up at like two in the morning so that they can catch the tail end of business transactions in Japan. And what I mean by that is these kids are staying up late because the kids are staying up late. So if you're staying up late, you're my friend, or you're in a a clique of cool kids and I go to bed at 9.30, but you're up until 11 or 12 um, posting Snapchats and commenting on people's TikToks and liking this and doing that. If you're socially engaged in an after-hours setting, and I'm not, I'm losing traction in the social hierarchy. And one of the things... My wife's calling me. She just... I, I can't talk right now, babe. I'm doing a podcast. Um, so these kids are incentivized to stay on these platforms for extended periods of time uh, after hours. And they come to school wasted. They come to school tired, man. They're so tired. I don't remember being this tired when I went to school. I mean, kids, they don't fall asleep as much as they used to in class, but they are just like, you can just see their faces. And I'm not a boring teacher, right? Look at me. Come on. Look look at this charm. I got it, right? (laughs) I'm just joking. But the the kids are tired, and I think it's social media in a big way that's doing it. Another thing that they do is the Chinese version of TikTok. Um, I don't know what I don't remember the name of the company, but yes, they're doing something terrible, which is scrubbing from the internet what they categorize as sissy men. That is their quote, not mine. Which I don't think is a good idea. So they're doing that, but they're also. Um, sort of, uh, what's the word, not funneling, they're sort of bottlenecking or tamping down the influence of influencers. So in a general sense, they, they don't want their young people to grow up to think that being an influencer is an ideal scenario. And, you know, you ask the average sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader, what do you want to do when you grow up? They're like, well, I want to make YouTube videos. It's like, what? You need a <laughs> You want to make YouTube videos? Like, go for it. Give it a shot. 
hope you like doing it because that's what's the outcome like is the is your benefit of having done it because you're not going to win that lottery that's what tristan harris calls it he calls it the fame lottery which the social media platforms have convinced us we're all just going to hit this fame lottery and then we get notoriety just for being ourselves and it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen for any of us and so young people in uh in china their tiktok algorithm uh does two things um it's it stifles, that's the word I was looking for, it stifles the impact of influencers in a general sense, but it also in um, it puts into their algorithm more science experiments that you can do at home and fun facts and things that are kid-friendly in order to bring kids into an awareness of like doing, dude, doing, could we make social media fun science experiments that you could do at home? or funny poems or um, crazy historical facts that you never knew but uh, have an impact on the world or quirky, strange historical facts. I mean, there's so much that these social media platforms could be doing, but instead they're influencing kids to become influencers, which I think when you have total state control, you can do that sort of thing. You can see like, oh, this is a problem. How can we fix it? But the benefit and the detriment of our current democracy and our democracy since its inception is the idea that everything is slow moving and that prevents us for, from becoming, um, you know, hyper legislative, even though it seems like we have become hyper legislative. Second point is that, um, that was all the points I had, but what I've been thinking about is, China, I think that what we have in the East and in the West, in China and in North America, what we have is this contrast between, or bringing it back to literature, because that's what I do, this contrast between Orwell's view of the future and Aldous Huxley, Huxley's view of the future. So Orwell is who everyone's familiar with, which is newspeak and... Um, constant monitoring of individuals and removal of sovereignty from individuals and a hard heavy-handed police state and we think everything is orwell actually in fact my last podcast with anton Mackey, he had mentioned that people should read um 1984 and i think that's a good book that we should read um but i don't think we're living in an orwell or orwellian world i don't think we're even really that close to an Orwellian world. I think we're living deep, like knee-deep in a Huxleyan world. And what that means is Aldous Huxley in A Brave New World, he didn't think that the government would be in a position, that the government would utilize tools in order to stifle people. Huxley believed that the media that we consume would be so engaging that we would be distracted from what's actually important. And I see that everywhere. I see it. I, I see my friends and family and people I follow on social media, and they seem to be posting about things that are a distraction from, for example, 38% of all of the dollars in circulation in the United States have been printed in the last 18 months. So I'm going to say that again, because sometimes when people are listening, myself included, it's hard to let something land. And I think this is extraordinarily important. 38% of the 
of all of the dollars in circulation in the United States have been printed in the last 18 months. And if we continue to argue about political divisiveness, and if we continue to allow ourselves to be hyper-entertained with media equivalents of Big Macs, we are going to miss the stuff that's actually really important. The fact that the Chinese government is scrubbing gay people from their country and that there's a genocide taking place with the weaker Muslims. We're going to lose context with the fact that in many countries it's illegal to be gay or, um, you know, the stuff that's going on in Afghanistan right now and previously. The fact that, you know, you have all of these people at the southern border of the United States three months ago from Haiti and the the polarization of your view on that, whether you think that like um, undocumented immigrants are like a scourge on this country or if you think that we need to be pulling every single human being that lives in a terrible place into our country, like wherever you are on that like polarized spectrum or somewhere in the middle, the thing that gets lost is the fact that countries are falling apart and they're falling apart because of corruption based upon monetary systems people say money runs everything money runs the world and that is true but the thing that we forget is the people who create money those are the ones that are running things we think that the lust for money and the gre- my recording has been stopped automatically. The maximum recording has been. Re- okay, my video cut out for a second. The point I was making was it. It was so illustrious and articulate and deep. Please tell me how deep and interesting I am. I'm desperately in need of someone telling me how intelligent I am. The point I was making when the video cut off is that people misinterpret the idea of money ruling the world. And the way that they interpret it wrong is that they think that the lust for money through capitalism is what destroys people's incentives and makes them corrupt. The thing, like, I want more money so that I can have more power. And I will do whatever I need to to get it. That is not what that phrase should mean. Money is the root of all evil because, because why? Man, was I on a roll. People are printing money. They're printing money. It's crazy. And if we keep focusing on the fact that people are divided politically, we lose track of the fact that people are printing money and that doesn't it's not going to affect us for a while am I a doomsdayer oh my god Air Wayne's gone crazy I'm not crazy says someone who might be crazy (laughs) the way that inflation works is should I should I go over this let me go over this the Federal Reserve is not a federal institution. It is a private private entity. And if this gets too boring for you, just go to another podcast. But I feel like I want to explain this. I want to have this on the record somewhere. 
at least my, I'm not a professional, right? And I've done my research on the internet. So take this with a grain of something, but this is my understanding and I believe it to be true. The Federal Reserve is a bank and that bank makes dollars. The United States government does not make dollars. There is the U.S. Mint that creates the physical dollars, but the United States government does not make dollars. They make bonds. And what they do is they say, okay, Federal Reserve, I would like to have $100 in bond, and I would like to have $100, please. And I'm willing to give you $100 worth of bonds. So we print these bonds. It's not printed. It's like 97% of the money in circulation is not physical any longer. It's all digital. But they say, just for argument's sake, here's 100 U.S. bond certificates. Can you trade with me $100? And the the Federal Reserve says, yeah, that's fine. But we're going to put a little interest on it. So whatever, you know, we'll give you 100, put 1% or 2% interest on it. So eventually you're going to owe me $2 as well as that $100 that you borrowed. And the U.S. government's like, yeah, that's fine. We trade it over, right? In the act of creating that money, what the federal government then does is they put that money into other banks. And those banks can then create loans with that $100. But in a fractional reserve banking system, which is the one we have in this fiat, uh, I'll explain fiat in a second. Um, Fractional reserve banking means that a bank, Chase Manhattan, JP Morgan, um, any of these banks, right? Even local banks they only have to keep a certain percentage. So just say for argument, say the fractional reserve system requires a 10% um, holding so that you don't have the, it's a wonderful life situation where there's a run on the bank, um, see um, 1930 um, financial crisis, Great Depression. So the bank can take that $100. They only have to physically keep $10 of it. And then they can loan out that other $90 to um, typically when the money comes directly into circulation like that, it typically goes to a corporation and that corporation can use that $90 to um, invest in their company. Um, But here's the crazy thing. If $100 ends up in Chase Manhattan Bank and they say, okay, um, whatever, I don't know, um, Yeti, I got a Yeti in here, right? Yeti, you can have $90 of a loan. What Yeti does is they take that $90 they put it into their bank, say, call it J.P. Morgan. Um, are those the same banks? Whatever, you get it. Bank A, Bank B. Once Yeti puts that $90 into their bank, their bank can do the exact same thing. And they take $82 and they give it to another corporation. And it's this fractal nature until you get down to the pennies. And once that money has gotten so small that a corporation isn't interested in getting it anymore... People like you and me get it for a mortgage. And so by the time the money has traded that many hands, that's where the inflation takes place. Because if you're, if I were to discover a gold mine that was worth $10 million right now, that would inevitably fluctuate the price of gold. But if I'm the one discovering it, I have the benefit of selling that gold at the current market price before the gold market um, adjusts to this new stockpile in the world's stockpile of gold. Does that make sense? So if gold's worth $100, just keeping it simple, and I find $10 million of gold, I can sell it at that $100 price, and as it filters into the market because of supply and demand, 
the market value of each ounce of gold will then go down. But I got the opportunity to sell it at the old price. That's what inflation is. And so when you have 38% of the dollars in circulation in the United States printed in the last 18 months, what that means is there will be a lot of investments. There will be a lot of companies who get very wealthy, a lot of individuals who get very wealthy. But that inflation of the supply of money over the last two years, by the time those dollars are in my hand or in my bank account, their purchasing power is significantly less. Because it's just like that gold analogy. I'm the consumer that doesn't get the gold as soon as it can be put into the system at market value of that day. I'm the one who has to use the ounces of gold after the market has adjusted based upon this new stockpile. That's what inflation is. That's why it's a problem. That's why if we're distracted by the wrong things, we are screwed. Should you buy cryptocurrency? Yeah. Should I do a whole podcast on cryptocurrency? I should probably do that instead of getting into it right now. Um, But I see that as a really useful safeguard in the same way we have separation of church and state and um what was the other separation that i mentioned earlier i don't remember what it was it was like 45 minutes ago but i think we should have separation of church and money i think we should have separation of state and money i think money is an independent thing man i've been listening to a, i've been listening to a lot of stuff on economics man like the idea of in the um, the Keynesian school of economics and thinking about thinking about price value, it's like we don't know what the price of anything is. How long am I going to go on this tangent? Hold on, my wife texted me. Let me just take two seconds to see if everything's cool. Trying to read and talk at the same time. Okay. So maybe I'll cut all that out or maybe I'll just listen to the little tune. Here's the thing. What was I talking about? We don't know the price of anything. I got a bobblehead. And if you're watching on YouTube, shouts out to my boy. He hooked me up with this little bobblehead bobblehead when I was a groomsman in his wedding. But I don't know what the value of that bobblehead is. And the only way that we can find out the proper price of that bobblehead is for the producer of it to say, I'll charge $89 for that bobblehead. And if the consumer, like a room of consumers say, eh, that's not worth the price to me, then he's like, okay, well, I'll sell it for 10 cents. And then gobble, gobble, gobble. He runs out of stock and then he goes bankrupt because he hasn't done a proper P&L on that. But the cool thing about price mechanism, as I understand it at a very elementary level, when because I'm, you know, I'm just learning about this, um, the Austrian school of economics, the human brain is capable of processing information in a way that uh, computers have yet to figure out. There are subtleties and intuitions that are inside of the human experience that are not attainable through silicon. And 
that means that when you have, even if you, even if it, even if it were, even if a computer could do exactly what a human does, and in a lot of ways, obviously, a computer can do way more than a human does. I have no idea how this microphone plugs into this computer. That is, I'm going to save this on a hard drive and then upload it to the cloud so that people can listen to this later. I have no idea how that works, but I know I can do it. Even if a human, so that I concede that point, but there are seven and a half billion people on the planet, and if you think about your brain as a tool that processes information and comes out with outputs in the same way a computer does, when we look at a product and say that is not worth the money being asked for it and enough people work together to say the same thing, we've basically outsourced our understanding of value to a network of individuals processing information independent of one another, but with the same stimuli. And so we then can start to allow the system to correct for pricing. And as soon as you find that individuals or groups of individuals like the Federal Reserve who can say, okay, each dollar has a 2% interest uh, tacked onto it. I mean, do you even understand the interest rate? When they say interest rates are low, do you know what that means? It means that the money that we put into circulation isn't owed back to the bank at such a high interest. That's not the government. That's not the government saying, um, you know, we're going to lower um, mortgage interest rates or we're going to lower this or lower that. It's it's the money that comes into circulation. So if I have a hundred dollars in my bank account, the the and that money gets paid back to all of my debts. Somewhere down this daisy chain of debts through banks, the line ends at the Federal Reserve, and if every dollar that's paid back to all of the debts that are owed, the Federal Reserve will still have an outstanding ticket to hold over the federal government's head and say, yeah, we got all our money back through this hierarchical chain of consumer to bank, consumer to bank, consumer to bank, all the way back, going through the stratification of wealth in the country until you get to the highest in, uh, the highest earners paying off all their debt, which are more closely linked to the banks that are then most most closely linked to the Federal Reserve. Even if all that money's paid off, we still owe on that money as Americans. Does this sound like a conspiracy theory? It sounds like it does, but it's not. Like, this is just the way that the monetary system works in this country, and it's so strange. And that's why cryptocurrency is so revolutionary. It was, and people think, I didn't plan on talking about cryptocurrency. People think that the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is monopoly money and what they don't realize is that they're holding monopoly money in their wallet and that the only reason that that money has any value is because people accept that it has value and the only reason that people accept that it has value is because the government tells you it has value and Yo Navarro, uh, Noah Yuval Harari in Sapiens talks about fictions and how there are things that we agree upon as a civilization that are just that they're fictions and not to say that fictions aren't useful and the understanding of money and value is a fiction it's an agreed upon thing we agree that gold has value because it's rare and it can't be created in a lab yet and we agree that um the u.s dollar has value primarily because it was held to a gold standard and then until the nixon administration it was taken off that standard um and you couldn't 
redeem your dollars for gold any longer, but that happened after the uh, trade of oil around the world, the OPEC nations, trade they trade oil in dollars. It's the reserve currency of the world. Even though we have a terrible financial rating, um, the reserve currency of the, wor- currency of the world is the dollar. And so that's a form of fiction. And the monopoly money aspect of cryptocurrencies. Oh man. Do you even want to listen to this? If you're still listening to this, you want to listen to it. So I'm going to keep going. The, the fact that um, Bitcoin doesn't seem to have value to some people shows me that they don't understand what it means for something to have value. Because Bitcoin is valuable because it is, it is, it is just a thing that has a limited supply and that's what gives it value and i and that's hard and abstract to grasp but the fact that something cannot be duplicated that's the whole conversation around nfts right like an nft is valuable a non-fungible token and i talked about this in a previous podcast if you want to know more about nfts just search aaron wayne yoga nfts or actually honestly don't look at me for the explanation of this because i'm not a professional um look to some others um, Gary Vaynerchuk has a lot to say about this, but I think that he's might just be kind of pivoting onto uh, something to earn. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. Um, Tom Bellew also has a lot to say about uh, cryptocurrencies, and he has a lot of interesting people on Tom Bellew with Impact Theory. But the fact that something is limited in its ability to be created, in fact, it is, there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. That is unprecedented. That is something that that we don't know anything that's like that. And the inherently limited aspect of creation of Bitcoin makes it a perfect tool to show value. Because what is value? What is my dollars? My dollars don't represent anything other than the time that I put into extracting value from my life. Another way to phrase that is every dollar I have in my pocket is somehow representative of time that I have traded in order to store value for the future. Okay. Another way to look at that, just to like have this really fully wrapped and understood. I spend eight hours a day working. I get just again, keeping round number, say I get a hundred dollars for that day. That day I'm spending my time doing something. And that time gets sublimated into currency. That currency can be held over time so that I can cash in on the investment of time that I've made. And so that's all that money is. Money is just a representation of your efforts in time. And the thing that's really screwed up is when people who try to run fiscal policy create more of that money They are diluting my life because I have invested my life in order to earn for the future, to take care of myself in the present, the future, and my children in the future. And if I have $100 and that gets inflated at 2, 3, 4, 5% annually, the money that I've invested or the time that I've invested to get money on a Friday, a year later on that Friday, that $100 is going to be worth less in purchasing power than it was previously. And so when people print money and it inflates the currency, it is vampiric. They're taking away human life force. And to prevent that, 
we need to have a currency that cannot be manipulated, that cannot be toyed with, that cannot be printed at will of individuals who, dude, they're going to make, they just passed the infrastructure bill. Is this country crumbling when it comes to infrastructure? A hundred percent. They're about to pa- pass a social spending bill. Does this country have a low birth rate, which is indicative of my generation being stra- uh, strapped with student debt? Does this country have a low um, um, home ownership for people under 30? Does this country, all of these things are true. Do do people of my generation have less saved than and more debt than their parents' generation? All of this is true, and we should be figuring out a way to do social spending. But if we are printing $3.5 trillion to replace, to build up our infrastructure to a higher standard, and if we are p- printing that money in order to give it to people, what will happen is the money that is earned by the hours you spend each day will lose value. Not only that, but think about this. I think I talked about this in a previous podcast, or at least I've been ranting about it with people that want to talk about these sort of things. If you take a if you take a one trillion dollars and you parse that out to five different contractors, so each contractor gets two hundred billion dollars in order to do a bridge, um, a new roadway, um, high speed internet, whatever it is, right? Do we, as American citizens, have a right to audit that company? Where can we have access to transparency in regards to they're spending because if they're using our money to do it, we should know how that money is being spent. Are they being efficient with that money? Probably not. You know, you talk to people that like government contracts is the most loot. If you can get into the government contract business, googly moogly, like that's where the money's made because it all comes straight from the government and they're, they'll just throw money at the problem. So you, you have a situation, this is, it, this is an angry podcast. Am I angry? <laughs> oh man, I uh, I don't even know what to title this podcast. I might just call it Number Forty Six. <laughs> I want to audit these companies. If it costs a hundred million dollars to fix a bridge, but we give them a contract for two hundred and fifty million dollars, so they pocket the delta of a hundred and fifty million dollars. Who's getting that money? You don't think that people that, God, am I, I've always thought this way. Social media didn't make me this way. Okay. I just want you to know that. I know I'm not going to, I'm not going to be storming any government buildings and I'm not burning my vaccine card and I'm not, I think I worry about people. And I think the thing I worry about is that people don't think clearly. And I think I also worry that I think that I'm thinking clearly. Because I might not be. But I think I am. I think that it's to the advantage of a lot of people. And I don't think that this is like lizard Illuminati stuff. I don't. I think that's all bogus. Like any reasonable person would. But I think that we've allowed our brainstem to create our, our incentive structures. And when you get someone who uses their frontal cortex, like Satoshi Nakamoto, Google it. 
you get someone who uses their cortex to come up with a solution to create incentives, you should probably follow that program instead of the one that's tapped into your lizard brain. How do I even wrap up a podcast like this? I don't know. I think I need to do more of these because I was venting today. And um, I don't think I've recorded a podcast in over a month. I was just like, I was just doing banked ones, honestly. I banked a bunch and then kind of let myself, um, let them cook for a while, you know. Um, so I haven't recorded a podcast in a month. I think I have a lot of things on my mind. But I hope that um, I hope that you're ingesting a diversity of information because I think that that's the only way that you, we can all see clearly here. And um, I hope you go do some yoga. I've been getting fit lately. I've been focusing on fitness, cardiovascular fitness specifically, and um, um, muscle mass. Not like as in not muscle mass and strength. I've been focusing mostly on strength. I've been trying to get stronger because at 33, I'm starting to notice problems with my knees and my shoulders and my back. And I think that, uh, what a, what a, what a segue. Talk about the corruption of fiat currency and individuals who have the levers of power to print money. And then talk about how I want to get strong. I want to get stronger. I just want to be stronger. (sighs) No, but I think we all should be focusing on getting a bit stronger. I think that the human body is an inherently anti-fragile thing. And it need, so an anti-fragile system gets stronger through stressors. And I want for our discourse, our conversation, the way that we ingest and um, create ideas needs to be anti-fragile in the same way that the human body is anti-fragile, meaning it gets stronger through stressors, not weaker through stressors. If your ideas are something that you're not willing to talk about, I think that that probably indicates that you don't really understand your own ideas and you need to flesh them out because they aren't anti-fragile. They're probably fragile. Does that make sense? Or maybe you're just not confrontational like me. I'm a fairly disagreeable person. And in my disagreeable nature, I have the capacity to bring up uh, conversations in spaces that don't invite them. And what that means is I started a podcast so that I could be as just as disagreeable as I'd like to be alone in my basement recording because my wife kicked me out of the yoga room upstairs because we needed a guest room. Now I'm out here in the basement and it's cold. It's almost December. What are you doing for Thanksgiving? That would have been a more fun podcast. Talk about Thanksgiving. Instead of U.S.-Chinese relations and Orwell and Huxley. I think that's the crux of this, man. Orwell and Huxley. Where do you think we are? think we live in an Orwellian world? Total control and domination by a centralized institution? Or do you think that we live in a Huxleyan world where our tools of entertainment and consumption have op- have hidden the realities of power. What do you think? Let me know. I'm happy to hear it. Wouldn't it be cool if I'd already had the music primed up, ready to go? Let's see. Drag, drop. Are you in there? Come on, music. It'd be a lot cooler if you did, man. It won't drag drop. 
What am I supposed to do about that? I can't do anything about it. <laughs> I'm out of practice. Uh, we did an hour. We got us an hour, guys. I'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace.